welcome back to Art Watch Podcast. It's been quite a long time since I last put up an episode. I'm not gonna lie, the last month or so, or however long it's been, has been quite crazy. I finished up my first semester as a PhD student, and oh my gosh, it felt like I was riding a bicycle that was on fire, and I did it. I'm proud of myself. I didn't do as great as I was hoping to, but you know what? Um... I finished it and I'm going to do better next semester. And for anybody who has just started graduate school, whether it's your master's program or your PhD program, um, and if you didn't do as great as you had hoped during your first semester, just know the first semester is always, always, always going to be the hardest. And if you made it through that, you can definitely make it through everything else. Um, I learned that in my master's program and of course having to relearn it for this new PhD program. Um, but either way, like, I know that I'm going to go into uh, this coming spring with a better game plan. Um, yeah, I learned a lot, <laughs> um, especially, like, how to tackle, like, a PhD-style paper. Got a lot of good feedback, some of it a uh, little harsh, I'm not going to lie. But you know what? Sometimes that's the best kind of feedback that you need because it's really going to push you to grow. And... It's like, I think one of my old classmates said this perfectly. She's like, it's like a kid who wants to, who doesn't want to eat their vegetables, but you know, it's good for you. So you got to do it. Um, and I think that's the, honestly, the best way to think about like those tough moments in grad school or even in your undergrad. Um, I know every undergrad program is different, but you know, if you can, if you, if you can push through, do it and yeah, you'll come out stronger on the other, other side. So fingers crossed. Spring 2021 is much better and that I bring my grades up. Um, yeah, which I know it sounds like I'm probably making it sound like I did like horribly, like I failed. But, you know, and when you're in grad school, like if you get like a B, which I got like the very first B I've ever gotten in like my entire college history. So it was a little jarring. I'm, I'm used to making like no, no lower than an A minus. But, um, yeah, no, so, like, I gotta bring up my GPA so that I don't get put on academic probation, but you know what? It's fine. Everything's gonna be great, and I'm gonna work harder next semester, and I've already been kind of planning as to how I want to tackle it, um, which is really good, and I, another reason why I love planners is because it really helps you break down, uh, and, and review, like, what worked and what didn't work, and I was able to do that this last week, and figure out that some of the study habits that I was keeping didn't fit right for the PhD program. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna shift it for this next semester and fingers crossed it gets better. But without further ado, it is so great to be back. I'm really excited to be recording again. And I think for this first episode back, we're gonna go ahead and do part two of Carmen Robles. So I remember the, when the first episode that I did about her uh, it was more of like a visual analysis. Was it successful? Um, some people commented, you know, it was great. They liked it. Um, and then I got some good feedback too. It was like, Hey, you know, why don't you slow it down a bit and you can go a little bit more into, de into detail. And so I did, and I, it was great. I was, I used that for my actual paper. Um, but the interesting thing, so Throughout my research, I learned that this person who's been identified as Carmen Robles is actually identified as like four other individuals of the 1910 Mexican Revolution. So 
I had to deal with this weird sort of um, problem where you have the um, multiple figures in the revolution and it was usually like the same three or four images and I'll probably go ahead and put them on like the Instagram post. So there were main figures, um, obviously Carmen Robles because, you know, she was identified as such. And then there was Margarita Neri who was supposed to be this really ferocious, violent young woman in the revolution. And there's a lot of myths surrounding her as a person in general. Some, some accounts had said that she claimed she was going to cut off Porfirio Diaz's head with her own hands. Um, there were also accounts that she drove people out of cities, governors of, of Mexico, like, like, there was one who apparently like shipped himself in a box out of the city when she got there because he was so terrified of her. And there was just like so many conflicting accounts. And there, honestly, there are so many to go into at this moment. Um, and again, like, I don't really know, like, how do we separate fact from fiction? Because with anything, there's like this sort of folklore that's happening around it. And it was really interesting. And I might get into it a little bit later. Um, but one of the other women that she was identified as was Adela Velarde Perez, who apparently inspired the song La Relita in the 1910 Revolution, which is like this sort of, um, like a, the only thing I can think of is a folk song. I'm trying to think of like, um, or like a, not a nursery rhyme, but like that's the, I think that's the closest thing I can think of into like um, an English equivalent. Um, but basically it was like this nurse in the revolution. There were multiple women who came forward and said that they inspired the song La Adelita. And a lot of the common factors were that she ran away at a young age, um, against the will of her parents. She did so because she wanted to join the revolutionary fight. Some accounts say that she was an active participant in the revolution, despite being a nurse. Other accounts were saying that she was only a nurse and she only took care of the men in the revolution. But ultimately, this man, which I didn't write down his name and I'll probably correct myself later, um, he was on his deathbed and um, he confessed his love to her and he claim that he wrote the song in her honor and blah, blah, blah. And it was really like this sort of like mysterious um, arrival of La Dalita. And it, it was it was super interesting because there was a lot of other like um, problems regarding uh, soldaderas in the revolution, like hypersexualization and how La Dalita originally, you know, it was supposed to be like this call to action for women, but then it became... Um, more of like uh, a gendered role where it was like forcing women into being like subservient to men in the revolution, like pushing down their actual role, saying that it kind of like they weren't as important as the men fighting. And then I found in one of the articles or uh, books that I was reading for it that uh, Siqueiros would actually, or not Siqueiros, Orozco, sorry, um, Jose Clemente Orozco, he painted like these really hypersexual um, images of soldaderas and basically equated them to prostitutes. So there was this really um, negative connotation or rather a complicated uh, tension between being a female soldier and then this um, questioning of your intentions, whether are you there to fight or are you there to, they would call them camp followers too. 
So basically just following along the camp road of the revolutionaries and it was easy money. So yeah, it was super sexist, super problematic. Um, yeah. And then there is another added problem to this research paper that I had where there were a few openly transgender um, soldiers in the revolution and one of them was Emilio, Emilio Robles, a visibly non-black soldier of the revolution. His name, his, his birth name was Amelia Robles. And the reason why it was, um, his name was applied to Carmen Robles is because her middle name is apparently Carmen Amelia Robles. And so there's, I think over time as different archives were identifying these individuals as different people, they became so overlapped and there was really no, it, it, history is becoming watery and it's, it, it became um, blended, I think. And that's kind of where I was going and with the paper. And I, I'll be honest, I didn't really reach a, a proper conclusion because like, how do you, how do you go about separating fact from fiction and then reclaiming these identities of these individuals in the revolution who are marginalized for their um, sexuality or for their gender. And in the case of Emilio Robles, who presented himself as male, like throughout the revolution and throughout the rest of his life, when recognized by the Mexican government, his house would only be recognized if it was called the Amelia Robles house. So like going by his birth name, um, and specifically the feminine version of, uh, of his name. So it, it's this really problematic thing that I was having to sift through, but it was super interesting, like how all of this played into, or it was possibly, um, like strengthened, I guess, by literature and news outlets of the time. So there were so many different things coming out about, Margarita Neri, uh, Carmen Robles, Emilio Robles, um, and La Ralita, that it was, I could see how it would be difficult for everybody to keep up, I guess. It doesn't, like, necessarily, it doesn't excuse the fact that, like, historians have perpetuated a lot of this, and from what I was finding, like, it's not just historians, it's, like, social media outlets, and I was trying to weave that into my paper is, because you have, I would, I had seen actually a couple like academic groups that um, there was a picture of that's identified by Ina as Adela Perez and or Velarde Perez, and then I had seen her the same woman identified in other instances as Margarita Neri, but they were on like academic or like news outlet pages, so it definitely pulls into question how the history is being taught and like what are the like what are textbooks showing? What are other archives showing? So I think this is something that requires so much more work and I would be 100% interested in trying to find that. But of course, like in the middle of a pandemic, that is very difficult to do. It was really hard to do research in general because a lot of this was in Spanish, which thankfully my Spanish, like reading Spanish is is pretty like okay and I can, I can read, uh, decent, I guess, enough for research purposes. Um, definitely not like uh, the way a native speaker <laughs> or, uh, would be able to do, but I'm, I'm pretty proud of how much my Spanish has improved. And 
when you have other languages thrown into the mix, if it's an archive, which most of these sources were, because, um, I mean, there's a lot of scholarship written about Soraderas, but most of it, at least from what I could find, was just about the general role. And, like, there were a few well-known people, but they're all, they were all in agreement that there's so much, um, like, miscommunication that we're just not going to try and find who they are. And one, one scholar even uh, said that it doesn't matter who they are because if we keep trying to change the identification, it's just going to create a more muddled history and nothing is actually going to change. And it's like, I kind of agree with it, but I more so disagree with it because I think that there's really power to adding a name to an individual and resituating them within history. That being said, I do understand how it can create a muddled past and how it can make history confusing. But that's the great thing about being a historian is like our aim is to find truth, I guess, or to find fact and do our best in the moment with materials that we have to make corrections from uh, past scholarship. And that's, I mean, I feel like that's the, the entire purpose of being a scholar really is like you're adding to scholarship and if you're not if you're just like being or if you're just like placating the past I guess then what's the point you know and so like that was my original goal for the paper but with the lack of information that I had um it kind of ended on a dead note but I was looking at I was using um there was this novel by uh Francisco Rojas Gonzalez or Gonzalez Rojas Oh my gosh, I should have written this down. But um, he takes this uh, figure, uh, Angustias, um, and she is a black woman. Well, she's actually biracial. She would be considered, uh, I believe they referred to her as mulata in uh, the novel. So she is half black or half Afro-Mexican and half mestiza. I believe her mother was... um, it was kind of murky on the couple translations that I was looking at as to whether she was white or if she was mestiza. There's this whole color politics in that period of Mexico. Um, and with the couple, the, the couple like scholarly takes on it, it seemed like they were combating each other. So I wasn't really sure which one to look at, but regardless, it would be somebody who was more upper class. Like the woman would have been more upper class or she would have been at least um, socially like like, based on the color of her skin, like, socially, um, like, upper? I don't know. But maybe not necessarily economically. Um, anyway, but in the novel, she's described as having, like, very, very dark skin, and she's supposed to come from, uh, or the, the character is based on a, a colonel in the revolution, an Afro-Mexican who was from Guerrero, And in the couple instances that I found of Carmen Robles, she was said to have been from Guerrero. And then so was Amelio Robles. And then so was, so were a couple of the other women that I'd looked into. Although Margarita Neri, like I've seen some accounts where she's from uh, the Yucatan and then others where she's from in other regions of Mexico. So it was a little bit uh, murky as to like, where do I pinpoint her? And then the same with um, the many women that came forward saying that they were the ones that inspired La Dalita. They were coming from all over Mexico. Although I will say most of the ones that I found, they were coming from around the Texas-Mexican border. And in a few of the accounts, they grew up 
in, or they were born in Mexico, they grew up on the border, and then they would go back and forth between Texas and Mexico. And then today, there is actually a grave for the woman, for Adela Perez, who who supposedly inspired La La Arlita, and... So there's, like, a whole, like, shrine dedicated to her, and it's this really interesting, like, concept. And, like, there's, like, there was, um, I wasn't, it wasn't clear if he was a historian or if he was just a biographer, um, what exactly his role was. It was difficult to find anything on him other than, like, news outlets. And, like, sometimes those can be credible and sometimes they can't. It's just, I feel like one frustrating thing with, um, more academic studies is that, if it's not from, like, a strict journal article or, like, um, something like Art Forum where it's, like, a news outlet for the arts, things like that, it's it's a murky line of, like, is this credible? Is this not credible? Can you use this in your paper? And so there was a lot of conflict around that and, like, how do I include this? And then same, like, how do we include social media into these discussions when it's becoming more prominent in our, like, era? Um And so, yeah, so it was kind of, like, interesting to see how that happened. But then, like, apparently, like, her children were there, or, like, her grandchildren, I think, at this point. Her children and grandchildren. And then the same with La Relita, like, the many women there. Some of them, like, said to have, like, disappeared from Mexican society, and they got married and had kids, and that was it. And then in other cases, they're like, no, they went on to continue doing all these great things. And in the case of Adela Perez, it was she... Well, they were actually a couple conflicting... um, stories about her, like the, the friends of Ladley, I think that's what it was called. They said that she came back to, she went to Texas, she got married, had kids, and then she, I I think she died of cancer. Um, but yeah, her, her grave is actually in, I think it's, I forget which, uh, cemetery it's in, but it's, it's in, it's on the, it's on the border and it's pretty, I think it's close to Brownsville. If you're in the Texas area, it's, it's somewhere around there. And um, their hope is that it, be- they even said, like, they hope that it becomes, like, a pilgrimage site. So, like, you can see, like, in all of these figures in the revolution, um, whether they're male, female, um, there's, like, this, like, this sort of iconicity surrounding them. And you have historians who are trying to pull apart or even to maybe brush under the rug, like, their role. And then you have, like, groups like the Friends of Aralita trying to elevate their status, you know, rightfully so, because, like, this is somebody who's considered a veteran. And you have, like, Emiliano Zapata, who is, like, the mega icon. I actually saw one of the images um, of Adela Perez, like, that's identified, the one that Ina has identified as Adela Perez. And also in a couple other sites that I've seen as Margarita Neri, she, that picture was actually on view at, there was a Emiliano Zapata exhibition, um, I think it was at uh, Bellas Artes in Mexico City. I saw it last year, actually about this time last year, yeah, because that's when I did my study abroad. And I was actually just scrolling through my picture, I was like, oh my gosh, I took a picture of this picture, which is kind of funny. But, um, so yeah, it's so like, if you're ever like on study abroad or you're going to exhibitions that you think might be related to your work, Take as many pictures as possible, and then please don't make my mistake. Take a picture of the label. I didn't take a picture of that label, so I couldn't figure out, like, how they identified it, and I couldn't get my hands on the catalog. Um, but either way, yeah, I know, like, it's super interesting. There's, like, this sort of blending of people, blending of histories, and then you have the added aspect of, like, more folk songs. I think they call them corridos in 
in this. That's what I saw. I don't know if that's like a proper translation, like folk song. I don't know. But yeah, it was super interesting. And it was one of those papers where it's like, it doesn't feel finished, even though you finished it technically, and you just want to keep exploring. And that's kind of where I'm at with it, especially given the fact that the novel is about an Afro-Mexican woman. And then when it was turned into a movie, they used someone who would be considered white in Mexico or like light skin, fair skin, definitely not Afro-Mexican. And then they did blackface on her. And in all of the interviews I found between the director and like other scholars or like the recounts of interviews, they're writing about the film, they're writing about the novel. They, I couldn't find except once who apparently um, the author based Angustia on. And apparently the original woman or the woman the novel was based on was somebody named Remedios Ferreira. And in the novel, the character's name is Angustias Ferreira. So the similar spelling, same, I guess, pronunciation, although I'm probably butchering it. Um, so sorry, Grandma. Uh, but anyway, um, I couldn't find anything on this woman. And again, that could be due to the fact that I was doing research in the middle of pandemic, didn't have access to any sort of archives. Um, also, there are limitations. Each university, thankfully, I was actually able to use my UH uh, library information as well as my current institution information. And I was able to have like a broad background, but even so, there's so many limitations to what archives, databases, journals that universities pay for. Um, and interlibrary loan is great, but it's not perfect because a lot of other institutions are closed. They're not doing interlibrary loans. Some places don't even have people working in the libraries, I think. Um, yeah, so it's definitely, definitely a little bit frustrating doing research right now, but we're gonna make it through. We'll all do it together. Anyway, um, but yeah, there was so many overlaps between the character that Francisco Rojas creates and all of the individuals that I had discussed in my paper. So Margarita Neri, um, the many women that inspired Laralita, and then Carmen Robles, Amelio Robles. And there were there were just so many different things. So my I guess my my core argument ended up becoming that he was pulling from each of them. He may not have seen this particular image of uh, the woman identified as Carmen Robles. He may have heard stories about her, just like he probably heard stories about Margarita Neri. And, um, again, adding in the many connotations of La Relita, the different iterations of it, ultimately a woman who is quite beautiful. She's, uh, wanted by all men, but, you know, the, it's a common trope in a lot of other cultures where you have this woman who is, like, so beautiful, she's desirable, yet she's pure, and, um, the virtuous qualities of, of, you know, being a virgin and like all the problems with that so I really wanted to try and like point out how like literature like with novels like this has really influenced history itself um and especially since many authors were also involved with the news and things like that um yeah no it was it was definitely a really interesting paper and my professor gave me some really wonderful feedback and she encouraged me to sort of theorize on my own and how we can go or what kind of method we can create from not knowing these individuals, especially since I was dealing with like 
the African diaspora in Mexico when, um, so if you don't know, like, and I don't think, I think I've talked about it before or maybe very briefly, but in colonial Mexico, there was the caste system that was implemented by the Spanish. And basically if you were not Spanish, you basically didn't really have any status. So it became like people who were born in Spain were the only ones who could have really high positions of power. Then you had, um, people of strictly Spanish descent, but they were descent, but they were born in Mexico. And so they were definitely upper class, but they didn't have the same privileges as people who were born in, in, uh, Spain. And then you had everybody else. So it was after that point you had like different, and they were like ridiculous names for percentages of if you were white with like if you were half white, half indigenous, then you were like strictly mestizo. And then they were like, if you had other percentages within that, like there were some really weird names. And then basically it was like this upper class tool to show like, oh, you know, like once after a few generations, you know, if they had indigenous blood in them, they become like basically passable and they're mostly Spanish again. So it's fine. You can breed with them. Super problematic. So horrible. And it definitely contributed to like years, hundreds of years of like racial problems, not just in Mexico, but throughout Latin America. And um, then within this caste system, if you had any amount of African blood in you, you could not return to being white or indigenous. You were just, you, you were only African. That's the only um, out, that's the only like identification you had in Mexico. And I, I'm focusing this on Mexico because the caste system or like social socioeconomic status was much different in other countries in Latin America. And it's much more complicated based on um, how slavery was in that region or sorry, that country. And then also how the government handled how the government handled it. And then also how the government handled indigenous people and I'm saying handled, and I feel like that's, like, not the right way to say it. Um, so maybe, like, basically there was a lot of slaughtering of non-Spanish descent. And it was horrible, and it happened throughout Latin America. It's really similar to what happened here in the United States, where you had lynchings of people, of African uh, people, and then also the outright genocide of indigenous populations in the United States. Um... So similar in that regard, but the concept of race is much different in Latin America and in Mexico. Um, from what I've read and from the classes that I've taken this semester, it it seems, and I'm saying it seems because like obviously like I'm not from those regions, so I don't want to speak for them, but it seems as though the problem of black and white is for them relegated only to the United States. Like we don't have that problem because we're all people of color, but it's much more complicated than that because of the social history of, or the racial history, I should say, of each country in Latin America. Like you had in Cuba, like the hypersexualization of the Afro-Cuban, specifically the Afro-female Cuban, and, and then in um, Brazil, actually I should say in Argentina there was like the actual like whitening of the state like there were plans to like make it so that indigenous people and uh, people of African heritage just didn't exist anymore like they were either bred out or they were slaughtered 
and it, it was really bad and like it and it again it's like different in each country and my focus for this paper was in Mexico because I was looking at the 1910 revolution but yeah so like the problem of race is is prevalent definitely throughout the novel uh, La Negra Angustias I mean the title itself La Negra Angustias like that's that's pretty pretty blatant like that it's we're looking at an Afro-Mexican woman. Um, and yeah, no, like it's, I feel like I've been rambling a lot and I'm so sorry, but, uh, no, like I, I would really like to take this research further and definitely like reformulate my approach because I feel like it was probably at that point in the semester where I, like, you've been staring at something so long that it reminds me of this meme. It's from like the, the always sunny in Philadelphia meme where he's like looking at like this crazy, like, you got, like, the red yarn, like, attached to everything. And I was definitely worried that that's what was happening in, in this paper because there was I was just trying to connect all the dots and, and really figure out what was happening on or what was happening within, like, all these different histories that were being connected. And, yeah, I definitely felt like a crazy person writing it. I'm not going to lie. But I'm pretty proud of it in the sense that, like, I want to, like, fix it. And I want to, like, I think I want to take this research somewhere else and, like, see what, see what can happen with it. Yeah, I know I rambled a lot for like 30 minutes and I'm going to try my best to make these episodes a little bit longer. I'm also trying to collaborate with other podcasters and that is in the works. Um, so fingers crossed something comes of it soon and hopefully within the next couple weeks, I'll have some of my former classmates and even current classmates come in and we'll do like a sort of zoom call. Um, I learned recently that when you record Zoom, they give you the straight audio. So that's really cool. I know I feel like I'm 23, but I feel like a grandma when it comes to technology, which I definitely need to get better at it, especially like, you know, like we're in the, you know, it, it's 2021. I should be better at this anyway. But um, to be fair, I usually only used um, like the Microsoft version of Zoom. I forget what it's called. It's been so long since I've used it. Um, and I've never recorded anything on Zoom. Anyway, I'm rambling again. Here we are. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I'm hoping to have people on soon. I actually just revamped the Patreon. So give me a sec and I will tell you all of the new levels. All right. So the first tier is now you're going to be a friend of Artwatch. It's $3 a month and this is just for general support. And, you know, thank you so much for, for becoming a patron and supporting all of this content creation. Um, the second level is going to be Art Watcher. It's $6 a month and general shout or general support. And I'll do a patron shout out on each episode. And then I'll add you to close friends on Instagram, which if you aren't following me already, it's at Artwatch Podcast on Instagram and on Twitter. Um, and then the next level is Art Lover. It's $12 a month and there's, it's going to be for general support. You'll get the patron shout out again, close friends on Instagram, and we're going to do merch discounts and sales. I'm trying to, within this next week, start my website for Artwatch and then I'll have, um, merch and it's going to be really cool and it's going to hopefully work out and then you can show your support on, for Artwatch. And then the next level is going to be Art Expert. So this is general support, patron shout out, close friends on IG, merch discounts and sales, and exclusive content. Um, and then you'll get an actual thing of merch. So the merch will include a sticker, mug, or tote once per quarter. So like once every season. 
Um, the designs will change each year and it'll be something new each season so you won't get the same thing. Um, I know if I was doing that I would hate to get the same thing. It reminds me of like you know in Harry Potter when like Ron has all the cards of Dumbledore and he's like ah I get them all the time. He's so common. You know I don't want that to happen for you. Um, and then the big mega level which if you want to do it great but I know I'm probably not going to have these patrons for a while. It's going to be Art Scholar. So it will be, again, everything above. And for this one, the merch will include the sticker mug or tote once per quarter and a t-shirt during the summer plus a rad hoodie for the fall. And the designs, again, will change each year. So that way you're not getting the same thing every time. Um, if you have ideas for what else you would like to have on those upper level tiers, let me know. I am 100% happy to, you know, add different things in if you if you think that um, you maybe want, like, a patron episode for the um, $50 a month one, then yeah, we can do that. And I'm hoping to have, like, um, a newsletter as I get more patrons, and that'll be monthly. Um, yeah, so check that out. I would 100% appreciate if you became a patron because that will definitely help me uh, put these out more consistently and also of better quality. Cause I know I'll be honest, like I'm still figuring this whole podcast thing out. I'm having a great time and I am so, so thankful for everybody who has downloaded. Um, I've only, this will be my eighth episode, I think. And I've already had like almost 200 downloads between all of the platforms that it's on. And I really, really appreciate that. And thank you so much for listening to me talk about art every week. Well, it's going to be every week from now on, from here on out. But yeah, no, I'm really thankful. And again, if you aren't already, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Artwatch Podcast. I can entertain the idea of a Facebook group, but I know a lot of people are switching away from Facebook, which is why I didn't do it in the first place. Um, so let me know. You can email me. My email is artwatchpodcast at gmail.com. And you can email me with either corrections, questions, you want to see a really cool artist on the show or um, talk about a certain artist. Or if you have a suggestion for somebody who you want to have on the show, like an actual interview or like a discussion platform, let me know. I'd be happy to do that. And um, don't forget, we have the different theme days. So there's Meme Monday. Make sure you submit your best art history or related memes. Texture Tuesday, I'm going to try and do some like really cool works that have like lots of texture or I'm trying to get back into my own studio practice so I might do like that ASMR thing where there's paint mixing. I don't know. We'll figure it out. It'll be a surprise. Um, Wednesdays, of course, Art Watch Wednesdays. Make sure you tell your friends about us. Um, Thursdays, Theory Thursday, I'll try and introduce um, different theories that are prevalent either in art history. I'll try and keep it tailored to Latin American art. With that being said, we pull from a lot of different disciplines, which is super really fun, I think. And that didn't make any sense. But anyway, here we are. Um, <laughs> Friday, it's figurative Friday. So I'll do a work of art that is self-explanatory. It'll be figurative. Um, probably a little bit more 2D, but if there's 3D works in there, that'll be great. Saturday, sculpture Saturday. If, um, you know, again, sculptures. If you have your own work that you want me to share, let me know. You can message me or you can email me again, artwatchpodcast at gmail.com. 
you can message me on Instagram or Twitter um, at Artwatch Podcast. And then Sunday, we're going to hop on that museum selfie train. It'll be Selfie Sunday. So it can be an old picture or it can be a new one because I know, of course, you know a lot of museums are closed right now. Um, if you are going to a museum, make sure you have that mask on. We're still in the middle of a pandemic. Um, and again, above the nose. I've seen a lot of people who are walking around with their mask where their nose is hanging out. And I saw this perfect meme and it was like, it's like you're exposing your genitals like halfway. And so, yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure all of you guys have your masks on correctly. But, you know, maybe you got some family members that aren't wearing it properly. Let them know. You know, gently, let, let them know. Um, don't get sick. Don't get somebody else sick. I hope you have had a good holiday season. I know, of course, this year has been really hard. Um, a lot of people have lost their lives. And I'm so incredibly sorry to the family members. And, of course, you know, the people who lost their lives from COVID um, or the other many issues that are going on in this country. So yeah, um, it's been a hard year. Let's hope that 2021 is better. And yeah, I think, I think that's, I think that's about it. Um, I look forward to putting out another episode next week and yeah, Thanks again for listening to me ramble for almost 40 minutes now. Um, I really appreciate it and I will see you guys next week.